Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. you ready to write? Do you want to learn what it takes to create a writing career? Then tune in and take notes because on Simply Write, we talk about the writer's craft and the qualities and quirks of living a writer's life. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Simply Write with Polly. This is the podcast where we talk about the writer's craft and crafting a writer's life. And you know, it isn't very often that you get to read these books and fall in love with these books and then get to talk to the author, but that's my day today. How lucky am I? I've got Amy Stewart here and I'm a big fan of the Cop Sisters, Amy. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Amy is a New York Times bestselling author of The Drunken Botanist, Wicked Plants, and several other popular nonfiction titles about the natural world, which I want to talk about a little bit too, because I think that's unique and awesome. She's written several novels, including The Cop Sisters, which I'm talking about. If you like historical fiction and you want to learn something you've never thought about before, go read these books. They're great. They're based on the true story of one of America's first female deputy sheriffs and her sisters. Now, have you ever heard of the first female deputy sheriff? No, I bet you haven't. Go buy the book. There's several. Now, Amy, you're up to like five, six Seven. of the cops. Seven of the cops. All right, good. I get one I need to pick up then. Her books have sold over a million copies worldwide and have been translated into 18 languages. Amy, what does it feel like when I say that? Millions of copies worldwide and 18 languages? is Was that the plan? Did you know that coming in that you were going to have that kind of writer success? Uh, no, not at all. I just the opposite. I, I think I'm just somebody who's always kept my expectations very low. So <laughs> I'm, I'm always amazed when anyone who is not related to me tells me they've read one of my books. I'm like, how is that even possible? How does that work? Well, I have read many of your books and I've actually given them to other people to read. So it's all good with me. Amy, every show we start with the dailies. What does a day in the life of Amy Stewart look like? Um, well, a typical day for me when I'm working on a book would be um, I'm not a morning person. So, uh, you know, so I'm up and drinking coffee and having breakfast by, let's say, eight o'clock. And then I'm out the door for a big, long walk or a run, which is, you know, easily takes up another hour. So really, by the time I get back and I've had a shower and, you know, it's like it's almost lunchtime. So basically, my work day tends to start after lunch. And um, 
you know, probably I, I work for about four hours in the afternoon. So I'm either, uh, I'm either writing or I'm researching, maybe I'm doing interviews with people. Um, but, you know, I learned a long time ago that uh, writing is not really an eight hour a day job. It's that's too long. Your brain can't really do intense creative work for eight hours at a stretch. So I started out that way because I had a, a job where I was expected to work eight hours. So I thought that's what you did. But I finally had to admit that I was really only productive for about four of those hours. So now that's what I do. Um, so, you know, by the by the time it's dinner time, uh, my husband's a rare book dealer and, you know, he gets home around six or seven. So that's sort of the end of my day. And then I try to save my admin work for the evenings when I'm sort of brain dead anyway. So just answering emails and doing paperwork or updates to my website or all that kind of junk. I try to cram into an hour or so every evening. Uh, but then by like eight o'clock, I'm done. It's over. So that's it's a pretty boring, pretty boring day happens all in daylight hours, no early mornings, no late nights. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I, yeah. that, I, I'm that i like that too. I used to, you know, there are all these rules that people told me when I, when I started writing and, and I, I am a very disciplined person. So I thought that looked like, well, you got to sit down and keep your head down. And, and, it, and it just was not effective for me when I learned my own stride a little bit and my own process better. Uh, it's made for better writer time and a happier person, healthier person too, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I really do believe this is something I've heard. And, and I think it's probably true that, you know, our brains go through cycles when we sleep. We all know that. Um, but they continue to do that during the day when we're awake. So when I find myself after, let's say, 45 minutes or an hour getting restless and distracted, I sort of have to remind myself, like, my brain's ready to do something different for a few minutes, you know, just go downstairs and get something to eat or go take a little walk outside or just do something that changes, changes up your activity level and then go get back into it. So I'm definitely not about forcing myself to push through in that sense, but I am pretty disciplined about daily work quotas. So, you know, I'll tell myself, it depends on the book or it depends on the project, but it might be, again, if it's when I'm actually writing, it might be, you know, a thousand words a day or some target that I've set for myself that gets me to the place I need to be by some certain deadline that's coming up. And um, when I'm done with that thousand words, I stop right then. I don't keep going. So uh, if that's two o'clock in the afternoon, then congratulations. I've got, you know, sort of the afternoon free. That's been really helpful to me. And those are the dailies. All right, Amy, I want to talk about that. Are are they a good a, a thousand words? Do you want, are, are they edited in that or revised in that process? Or are you just about getting the words out? And the other part of this question is your books have to be really research intensive. I mean, you have got a lot of, you've, obviously your nonfiction books are science-based, but even in your fiction, there's a lot of history and you're, you're creating the scene. And I mean, it's, they're really interesting. So is that part of writing too? Do you see that as one and the same, the researching, the writing go hand in hand? Well, I learned a long time ago that what works best for me is to do as much research first as possible before I write a, a word. That's not how hmm. I started out. So like my second book was a book about earthworms and I was trying to write and research at the same time. And it was a mess. And I rewrote that book several times before uh, it was finally ready. 
and someone much older and wiser than me who teaches at a nonfiction writing program said, um, he said, oh, I know what kind of writer you are. I've seen a lot of writers come through here and they're either one or the other. Either they just, they don't know where they're going and they just have to get in and make a big mess and it's pretty chaotic, but they figure it out in the end. And that's the kind of writer you are. And then there's these other kind of writers who want to do all the research and planning first so that by the time they start writing, they pretty much know right where they're going. And it happens pretty quick. And I said, oh, I want to be that other kind of writer. And he <laughs> said, well, you can't change or either one or the other. And I was like, watch me. Like, I just needed someone to tell me, you know, like you could do this another way. So I'm very uh, disciplined about no writing while I'm in this research period of time that I'm in. So when I do sit down to write, if it's, let's say it's a thousand words a day, and it might be less than that, it would never be more than that. Uh, whatever this sort of quota is, I try to just write it straight through mm -hmm. and just put little X's uh, where I need to go look something up. Like you mentioned with the cop sisters novels, it's really important to me to not let any anachronisms creep in and to really sprinkle in very specific kind of historical details that I think would be interesting to people without seeming overly researched. So that might mean that I have a question about like, well, what were eyeglasses like in 1918? Were they all metal rimmed? You know, whatever, right? So I'll just put a little X, like go figure this out later. And that lets me just keep going and not kind of lose the flow or get lost on the internet. Yeah, that's something I had to learn. And I feel like I'm still learning that because I write mostly nonfiction. I'm working on a novel now and I feel unsettled. But if I break that rhythm of my writing, it's really hard for me to get back to that mind. You know, every little distraction, even if it's my own, it, it takes me off the path of writing that I need to be on during that time or during that day or whatever. That's interesting. Did it take a while for you to learn these things about yourself? You mentioned your your uh, the other teacher who gave you that information, but has this evolved over the years for you? You found your stride or did you come out real, a real scholar of writing to learn the process and learn what you needed to do when you started writing these books? No, I really have kind of figured it out as I, as I went. Um, unfortunately, you know, I sort of learned it all the hard way by doing everything wrong. <laughs> and, um, and, and also just realizing that you know, we each sort of have to find our own way and figure out what works for us and what works for us might not work for someone else. But I'm still gleaning ideas from other people. Like that's the other thing is that never ends. The, the process of kind of refining how you go about doing your job uh, never ends. It's just a, hopefully at some point you've developed a good enough bag of tricks that you can stop seeking so desperately solutions to all your problems you know you're sort of you're sort of like i i, I kind of get how to do this but i'm always open to figuring out a way to improve the whole process so for example something that i started doing um probably with the cop novels actually is uh i came up with a very specific way to read the book out loud uh very very near the end so once it's like almost ready to go into copy editing. I do this thing where I print it out on actual paper and I scramble the pages out of order or just randomly pull pages out and read them out loud one at a time, but not in any order. So I don't get sucked into the story or thinking about bigger issues. I'm just reading it for language only. And, uh, in addition to just fixing whatever I might find on that page by doing that, 
I'm looking for the worst thing on that page. The, the dumbest line, <laughs> the laziest piece of writing, the worst cliche, not a little typo. Typos are just you fix them, right? Or word repetitions. Those are just obvious things that you look for and fix. But something that's truly cringeworthy and, and like, what was I thinking here? And I try to turn that into the best thing on that page. Hmm. So I really push myself for how can I make this be the most delightful little piece of language on this page? And if you do that on every page, then you've just made upwards of 300 remarkably delightful improvements to your manuscript. So that's something I do. And you can only do so many of those a day because you're, it's exhausting to your brain. So I might only be doing 10, 10 pages of that every day. And I really have to limit myself because at some point I'll just zone out and stop working so hard. So I have to leave myself that room in the schedule. Like, okay, it's a 300 page manuscript. If I'm going to read 10 pages a day aloud, you know, I need 30 days to get that done and it's got to be turned in on this date. So I got to start over here. You know, I really have to kind of like manage that time. I love that practice though. I, I read my stuff out loud and I've heard other writers say that, but I think taking the pages out of order because I can zone out just reading my thing again. I've already read it 50 times probably, you know? So when I'm going through those pages on the final, it's like, I'm sure I'm missing things, but taking it out of order, it, it catches your brain a different way. I think I love that idea. Great yeah, idea. Great. Okay. Have you always been a writer at heart? You mentioned another job before the, the books took off, but have you always as a kid been telling stories and doing this kind of stuff? Yeah, I was, you know, this is, this is one of those questions that makes me a little nervous because I don't <laughs> want to give people the wrong impression. So yes, I was one of those kids who was a super early reader and um, if you asked me when I was five, I would have said I wanted to be a writer. So it was always something that I wanted to do, although it seems sort of impractical and, you know, you don't make a living doing that. So what are you going to do for a job? Um, but the thing I want to say is we, I, I feel like we have this, we all have this strong interest in, you know, were you super into that as a kid? Like, can we go into your childhood and find an indicator of who you are as an adult. And I just, I, I want people to know that I think that's supremely unimportant. Like, you know, it, I also wanted to be a veterinarian and a ballerina right. at the same age. The, it's, it's such good news that we are not the same people we were when we were five. Because <laughs> the world so would be terrifying if that were true. So you can become interested in something when you're 30 or 50 or 70 and, um, be very successful at it. And the world is full of stories like that. So especially any sort of artistic endeavor like painting or drawing or writing or uh, playing music, those are technical skills and anyone can learn them. Anyone can learn how to play the piano and anyone can learn how to draw a picture and uh, anyone can learn how to write these. It's all teachable. So I, I think Sometimes I, I hear this a lot from people like, oh, I just don't have that artistic gene or, you know, the talent just didn't flow to me. And I'm like, it's not a gene. It is not a gene. It's not something in your family. There's no such thing as talent. Uh, you, If you're interested enough and motivated enough, you can learn how to do this and start anytime. I absolutely agree. And I was a writer kid, but but it was a decision. You know, as an yeah. adult, it became a decision. I could decide to do another job, but since I'm doing this one, I'm going to learn all I can to do it as well as I can, you know? Right. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, I want to get into craft. I want to talk about some specifics in your work. We're going to take a short break right here on Simply Right with Polly and Amy Stewart. When we come back on Creators Network of Electrocast, we'll be right back. And we are back. You're listening to Simply Write with Polly. And I've got author, novelist, millions of books sold writer, Amy Stewart. We're having an interesting discussion. Amy, one thing I want to hop into is you write really powerful, interesting, engaging nonfiction books, and you also write fiction. Now, one of the rules I heard when I was starting out is you got to pick one. Obviously, you didn't. How do you juggle both? Do they do they require different energies? Do they require a different process? Or is it just all about chasing your interests and the things that you want to learn about? You know, for me, the, the, there are a lot of similarities. So uh, both in my nonfiction and in my fiction, I'm really telling stories about people. So, you know, I wrote a book about earthworms, but it's not really about earthworms. How would you even do that? It's really about people who study earthworms and I wrote a book about the global flower industry, and it's really about the people who work in the global flower industry, not about the flowers specifically. So in that sense, storytelling and character development and dialogue, like a lot of that stuff is all kind of the same. What was different for me with the cop novels was writing in a voice that was not my own. You know, I this needed to sound like it came from her. And she was born in 1887 and grew up speaking German and English and living in Brooklyn. Like she couldn't be more different from me. So I had to be very studied and careful about her language and her voice and thinking about how she talks. So that was really kind of the biggest, I think, challenge with those novels. Yeah, I I can I I think of that when I read the cop novels and I also just get so frustrated for her because she has to push against this society and she wants so much more. I I like them. I like that she does that for herself. And and as a modern day woman writing, um, I imagine there are some similarities in some of that stuff, too. Was was that something? Are you interested in history like that? Is that how you landed those ideas or did you want to did you find the idea and then decide, oh, I'm going to try the historical novel? Yeah, you know, I stumbled across her by accident while I was doing research for the drunken botanist. Um, I someone with this uh, uh, the same name as a as a person in the cop books. Uh, so I was doing research through old newspapers, and I found a story of this person who happened to have the same name as the person I was researching, and it was a story about Constance Cop and her sisters. So it was fascinating, and um, but you know that happens all the time when you're doing research, right? You go looking for one thing, you find something else, and you sort of got to tell yourself, no, no, stay focused, let's get back to work. But I got very sucked into the story and uh, couldn't quite put it down. Uh, and eventually, I started to feel this real sense of obligation, actually, like, you know, anyone could have found her, but I'm the one who found her. Mm-hmm. And she'd been completely forgotten about. No one who studies the history of women in law enforcement knew anything about her. So like, this was all original research. And it wasn't just newspaper mm. articles. I tracked down the family. So I've spoken to descendants of this family. And I've been to the places and interviewed even a lot of the peripheral characters i've interviewed their descendants and i've like really patched their lives together in a way that in some cases the family didn't even know so uh it's been an incredible journey and and i really um i really kind of felt called to do it you know in addition to the fact that i mostly read fiction for fun 
Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, why am I not writing fiction if that's mostly what I read for entertainment? Mm-hmm. But also mm-hmm. just it really felt like they deserve this. They deserve to be better known and appreciated. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate them and, and the books. I, I think it's so inspiring when writers get a hold of an idea or the idea gets a hold of them and they pay attention to it because I think so many of us in the world reason our way through things and say no i can't do that right now or no i'm too old to do this or no and and i think not just in writing but in life when when we feel compelled by something i think it's a great way to live to pick up on that energy and and learn and and pursue that in a in a way that i think makes a difference in the world so i love that when you're writing fiction and not because i i've noticed this in in your um botanist book too there's a certain amount of tension there's a certain amount of like you said character development is that intentional are you always looking for ways to keep that thread going in your nonfiction and and obviously your fiction keep that tension or or keep those questions paramount and and is that how do you do that what is what techniques do you do to build on that well i think you know I mean, I'm thinking about my readers and I think it's interesting to read about people. And and, uh, once you've decided that, once you've decided that you're telling stories about people, then some things fall into place. You know, uh, they need to have a physical description and they need to have dialogue that's in quotes and they need to have something they want. You know, is it, uh, is it, was it Elmore Leonard who said, your character has to want something on every page, even if it's a glass of water. I'm not sure if it's him or something. I don't know else, either, but, anyway. but I've heard that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so what do they want? What's thwarting them? What's getting in the way of them getting what they want? And how do we make them likable or just understandable as a, as a human being? So those things are, you know, those things are really important to me. And, and I think it's what makes nonfiction very readable. What I'm always on the lookout for is I don't want my books to read like a Wikipedia article, right? We, we can go get information about women's roles in World War I or about how, uh, how grapes are turned into brandy. Like we can find the information. So I don't want to subject my readers to pages and pages of Wikipedia style information dumps. It, it can't be that. So if it's not going to be that, then what else is it going to be, you know? Yeah, I think you do that well. And I'm really interested in it from the nonfiction standpoint, because it's really easy to leave that stuff sounding like some journal entry, right? And and that's a testament. All the cells are a testament to the fact that you've done that well, because I think we need to be conscious of that in all our writing. There is inherent tension when you're bringing in a human being any kind of character at all and and i think the the best authors pull that out so that's that's really interesting what challenges do you face from the day-to-day as a writer do you still deal with imposter syndrome or did you ever do you have days where you don't feel like writing what what's the hardest part of the business for you um well sure i definitely have days when i don't feel like writing and for the most part if i'm on my little schedule that i've set for myself i try to I try to crank out words on those days as well. And, you know, uh, you tend to you tend to look back several months later and you can't even tell the difference between the good days and the bad days. It all kind of looks the same. So I am pretty disciplined about trying to stay on my schedule, but my schedule's gotten more humane over time. I, you know, it used to be seven days a week. I didn't take weekends off. Mm. I didn't I didn't have days off. And and now I have days off. So um 
I do try to make it a little easier on myself at least. Has the business gotten easier because of your success and your experience? Like, do you know what your next book is going to be because you have it under contract or do you still feel like there's some hustle involved to, to find the idea that fits you and fits the market? Oh yeah, no, there's a lot of hustle. It's, you know, you're only as good as your last book and, and every, right. you know, it's always, it's, it's always a big unknown. So um, I continue to send out proposals that go nowhere that hmm. my publisher rejects. And, you know, I've struggled with the question of, well, do I try to find something else that pleases them or do I take this out and shop it to other publishers? Um, yeah, the market's changing all the time. Uh, so what publishers want to buy is uh, is always in in flux. Uh, my my next book, which is coming out this summer, is about trees, and it just so happened that I sold that proposal at a time when kind of everybody wanted a tree book, and I, <laughs> I I wasn't intending that to happen. It's an idea that I'd sort of had in the back of my mind for over a decade. And I finally decided it was time, but it, it worked out that way. And so that was good. But by the same token, you can come up with an idea that's uh, really off base. That's maybe the sort of thing that would have been popular 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's out of fashion right now. So um, no, it's, uh, it, it, it's always a struggle. And you know, with every book, there's also this feeling of dread of, oh, if they say yes to this, then I have to write it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how am I? How, what made me think I could pull this off? How am I, how do I even start with this? Like, there's always this feeling of like, how do you even write a book? Like, you know, I'm on my like 15th book now and I still sit down at the beginning and go, I don't see how I sit down today and at any point in the future, there's a pile of pages here that I can send to a publisher. Like, this makes no sense. You are making me feel so much better. I'm just on my fifth and I'm like, I, I, this is such a joke. What the heck am I doing? Why did I think I could do this? Right. But then I can't stop doing it either. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm the fool. I keep sitting down every day and doing the work and well, it comes. Yeah. You know, I think the difference is that with books, it's, it's such a long reward cycle. You write a page today and someone's going to read it three years from now. So no one stands up and applauds. You can't post a picture of it on Instagram and get a million likes. There is no there's no feedback at all coming in and it makes it kind of unique among art forms in that way. So that's something I always tell people, like if this feels frustrating and difficult and impossible, yes, this is a lot <laughs> harder. If you think you might also be happy learning to play the guitar, I strongly suggest you go play the guitar. You will improve faster. You'll enjoy yourself more. Uh, it's a, Yeah. You it's could a, have a song by the end of the day. You can have a song. You can you yeah. can write a song in a day, absolutely, and you can write a song every day if you want to. And and you you get noticeably better playing the guitar from day to day if you practice. Like writing is so, so murky and difficult compared to that. Well, I wanted to ask you about your sketching and your art because I follow your newsletter, your Substack. What's the name of that again? Can you tell me it, that? It's called um, "It's Good to Be Here." Yeah, it's good to be here. Sign up, subscribe to the Substack. It's it's enlightening, it's fun, but but the sketching, that seems to be another part of your life. Does that fuel the writing? Does that just make you, you like that as a person? Do the two play off each other at all? Yeah, you know, I, I got into painting, oil painting about 20, almost 25 years ago. Um, and my first idea was that I wanted to just be able to go outside and draw little pictures of what was happening in my garden, which sort of felt akin to the books I was writing at the time but I couldn't find a class in that. And this was sort of before online classes. And there was an oil painting class from a 
painter I really liked. And I realized that oil painting and writing are a lot alike because it's really about revision and working it over and you can wipe it off and start again. Like I was very comfortable with that process. Um, so I really enjoyed it, but over time I did want something more portable so I can take something with me when I travel. And that's when I got into more drawing and painting in a, in a sketchbook with things like pens and watercolor. It's just easier to carry around. And um, yeah, it's a nice break from writing because it's completely nonverbal. Mm. Uh, and it's also nice because you can finish something and show it to someone and they can go, that's cool. And you're like, I know. And you know, and, <laughs> and you do get demonstrably better with practice. And they are extremely teachable skills, hmm. more so than writing. I mean, I think there's a lot of writing that can be taught, but drawing is 100% teachable. It's all technical skills. You can start knowing nothing, and a year later, you will have learned all the stuff. And if you're interested in it and engaged with it, you want to practice it, you will, you will get very noticeably better pretty quickly. So cool. it's a lovely break in that sense. But yeah, now, for the first time... Um, so my next book, which is coming out this summer, I illustrated the book. Wow. The tree, is that yep. the tree book? Yeah. It's called the tree collectors. And I went around and interviewed people who collect trees. And so I drew portraits of them and also of their cool. trees um, alongside the interviews. With Great. Them. We'll look forward to that. And that brings us to one of my favorite segments and it's called what's in the desk. Amy, what tools or supply or trinket do you have around you when you write, if anything at all? Oh, interesting. So, well, one thing I'll tell you is it's not in the desk, it's on the desk, is that I'm obsessed with my mechanical keyboard. So I have a DAS keyboard, D-A-S, and it's um, completely, I, I wish I could show it to you, but uh, you'll have to imagine it. There's no letters on the keys, so it's completely black. So you have to be a very good touch typist to use this keyboard but also they're mechanical, they're metal keys, kind of like typewriter keys. So it's noisy and clacky, but it's in a way easier on your hands because you're not uh, pushing the way you do with a regular keyboard. So I love that keyboard, uh, prized possession. Um, the, and the, actually the only other thing that's in my desk, well, actually there's a few things. So there's index cards and I love to, outline and work up ideas on index cards. There's also a lot of spreading out of paper and covering it with post-it notes. So there's many different colors of post-its in my desk. And then um, there's this uh, TheraPutty stuff that you squeeze in your hands to make your hands uh, stronger and to help condition the muscles because I get injured from typing too much. So those are all things that I literally have my hands on every day. What you said about your hands getting hurt, you know, people don't talk about that, but at the end of a long day, my fingers get stiff and start aching. We have to keep our, we have to keep our hands agile if we're gonna do this job this way. We have to be proactive about injuries. And of course, it's a huge issue for artists as well. You know, your shoulders, your back, your hands, your wrists, your elbows, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I really, uh, so I taught in the MFA program here at Portland State many years ago for a semester. And I really talked to them about your body. Like, <laughs> you have to keep your body strong. You need to go exercise. Like, you use your brain to write, but your brain needs to be happy and healthy in order to work well. So you need sleep. You need to not drink too much or do too many drugs. You need to get outside <laughs> and exercise. You need to like keep yourself 
up and running and blood flowing and all of that, uh, you can't overlook that as a writer. And you yeah. can get to a point where you've injured yourself so badly that you can't be at a desk. It does happen to people. So everything from the chair you sit in to the uh, exercises you do um, actually allow you to keep doing your job. This has been a delight. I'm going to have links to Amy's work and her site on my Substack at simplywrite.substack.com. You can join our free community there and find out more about the writer's life and, and the writer's craft. Amy, where can we follow you, get your new book, stay in touch with your work and your writing class or your, your sketching classes? How can we find out about those? Yeah, so my website is amystewart.com and uh, there's a link there for classes. I have some online classes about writing um, that basically answer the questions that I get asked from other writers. It's pretty much the only things I know about writing are in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the art classes are there as well. And yeah, you can find my newsletter on, uh, on Substack too. All right, writers, it's time for us to get to work. This week, remember the words of author Diana Gabaldon. She says, I don't write in a straight line. I don't write with an outline. So I write where I can see things happen and then things get glued together. This week, writers, sit down and simply write. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.